Welcome to the Good Clinical Podcast presented by ACRO. For ACRO, I'm Robert Siegel. The National Institutes of Health describes good clinical practice, or GCP, as a set of international guidelines. These guidelines help to assure the safety, integrity, and quality of clinical trials. ACRO's Good Clinical Podcast draws upon these GCP standards to present a series of conversations conversations about how the clinical research industry aims to make trials better for patients. These conversations with industry leaders shine a spotlight on hot topics in clinical research, from recruiting more diverse populations into trials to using technologies that can reduce the burdens on trial participation. ACRO's GCP brings together some of the sharpest minds in clinical research to discuss how innovation can help us build better trials. Now to our host, Sophia McLeod. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of GCP. I'm your host, Sophia McLeod. Today, we're talking all things artificial intelligence and machine learning. I'm once again joined by representatives from two ACRO members. Lisa Moneymaker is an ACRO board member and the Chief Technology and Chief Product Officer at Sama Technologies, and Stephen Pike serves as ParExcel's Chief Clinical Data and Digital Officer. Lisa and Steven will give us an overview of how AI is being used in clinical trials today, where we're going with this technology, how we get there responsibly, as well as the role of regulators and legislators as we move forward. I hope you all enjoy this very timely discussion. So Lisa, Steven, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, We're really excited to have you here to talk about AI and ML in drug development um, and really get your insight on where we're at and where we're going. But before we dive into our topic for today, I was hoping to get us started with a little icebreaker question that we like to ask everyone who joins us on the podcast. Um, Obviously, our name is a play off of good clinical practice. And so with that in mind, um, we'd love to hear what good clinical practice means to you. And maybe Lisa, we'll start with you first. Sure, absolutely. Thanks. Um, so gl- good clinical practice, I think, is inherent to any of us who have been in the industry for a while. And, you know, something we seek to imbue on anyone who's joining our organizations who maybe came from outside. But I think at its core, it really boils down to supporting safety of drug development and efficacy for the patients. Um, I think it gets broader when we think about, you know, we all have kind of the aim of how do we do that expeditiously? Because I think ultimately, you know, new and novel and and more accelerated treatments to patients is sort of wrapped up in a part of that, but doing it in a way where we are always conscious of protection of data, of ensuring that we are planning for, you know, and adhering to intended use. Um, and then, you know, ultimately making sure that as the as the landscape changes, which it continues to uh, at even more and more alarming rates and, you know, evidenced by why we're here and chatting today, um, that we continue to adapt that to preserve that sort of core safety and efficacy um, to the changing modalities of what we're trying to do. So, you know, risk-based monitoring is a key part of that, um, making sure that we're taking a risk-based approach to everything that we do that, you know, I'm in the technology sector, that we're not spending as much time thinking about, you know, did we test the color of the button as to whether did we test, you know, the core fundamentals of whether data was captured and maintained 
um, appropriately, effectively, and accurately. Um, and having those sorts of thoughts in mind to what is truly our end goal, I think keeps us in perspective on maintaining that adherence to GCP. Awesome, Stephen. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's. I'm struggling to think of something to add to it, but let me let me offer a couple of words. And maybe where I'll begin actually is at its heart. What I think GCP leads us to is medicines, which someone who's reasonably well-informed feels comfortable giving to a member of their close family. And implied in that is all the things that, that Lisa's just said. If the studies were conducted with integrity, with care, at high quality, that the data was gathered carefully uh, and that we can rely upon it, um, that there is good documentation evidencing the quality at which the study was conducted. Um, and, uh, and we end up therefore with a package which we describe as meaning we've adhered to GCP, which allows us to feel confident taking medicines that have been approved through this process. That's fundamentally, I think, where we're aiming for. And, and of course, organizations such as mine and Lisa's, you know, for us, it's the absolute bedrock of the way we operate. That's great. Thank you both. So now let's pivot to sort of why we're here today. Uh, and that is to talk about AI and ML in drug development. Um, so I'm hoping we can start the discussion off with a bit of a level set to kind of see where we are now in the industry. Um, so really just opening this up to the both of you, whoever wants to go first can jump in. Um, but, you know, are we using AI and ML tools currently in drug development? How are we using them? You know, I think a lot of people are they hear AI and they think a robot is going to be, you know, in charge of their care or whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, maybe just kind of give us an idea of where we're at right now. Shall I? Maybe I'll get the ball rolling. Yeah. I, 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 it was interesting that earlier today, um, I was in a conversation around, let's call it ChatGPT. It was another implementation, but in essence, it was ChatGPT. And one of the things that was really interesting as we were reflecting on it is, on the one hand, how incredibly powerful it is. And yet, on the other, how at first blush, how non-intuitive it is. But I think what, it, and, and I'll say a bit more about that, I'm sure, during the context of, of our conversation today. But, but I think for me, what ChatGPT does is it marks a transformation, a sort of a defining moment that divides everything that went before from everything that follows. And the lack of intuitive of ChatGPT today is a way, if you like, of reflecting how much there is still to learn about what AI is and how to use it, let alone develop the applications that we will see many, many of them in the coming weeks, months, years, and they're gonna come very fast. But, but in terms of where we are now, I mean, AI has been around for a long time. The ideas have been around for decades and indeed they've been used in drug discovery and development for many years as well. And in particular, you know, in organizations I've been a part of and those I've been close to, we've seen them AI used widely in, for example, uh, drug discovery. Human biology is very complex, helping find druggable targets. Similarly, chemistry, finding molecules which have desirable properties, which we believe are more likely to be safe and efficacious. Uh, closer to the patient, uh, you get into spaces like companion diagnostics, image analysis in particular. And we see uh, a number of applications there where we're using computer analysis of images to choose the patients for whom the medicine is 
likely to be the best option. So just a few examples, but but you know, there are many, many more we've already seen and far more still to come. Lisa. Yeah, I think you summarized it well. I think you are absolutely right, Stephen, about the, the transformative nature of where we stand today. It's really exciting to see um, companies' exploration with AI and ML and, and the disagreement of whether ML is AI. And you hear these stories come up you know, quite a bit as people really get into it and parse it. But it's been something that I think has been growing in um, application to trials across the board, like you said, discovery, development, you know, commercialization as well. Um, the, the exploration has been there, the applicability has been there, but I think the interest level has really gone through the roof over the last couple of years. And as you said, even the last couple of months, truly as these large language models has really captured the, the um, interest of the world, not just in our space, but sort of in our everyday lives as well. I think there's a renewed interest. You see this in, you know, the advent of heads of AI and heads of innovation at companies that maybe didn't exist before, but now companies realize that um, everyone is recognizing the transformative moment. Um, you know, if you go back three, four, and five years, it was really basic models and training that we were looking at. You would hear people talking about univariate and bivariate analysis. Could we look at a, you know, data points within a single data set and multiple data points and be able to compare them? Um, and I think that that was great for getting, you know, feet wet. And I think that's where many companies that are getting into the space start today, uh, both, you know, within the sponsor and CRO community and within the vendor community, that's kind of the initial foray into it. Um, but the acceleration of what is possible when we start to look at different ways that we can apply these kinds of models, it really, uh, I think, stretches as far as your imagination can stretch, especially as we get into, um, again, the generative piece and, and where can that be applied. I think that what the exciting part is and also the trepidatious part is how, you know, and I know we'll get into this today, that we start to apply this judiciously, that we apply it with the same level of rigor, you know, to cast back to your GCP comment. Um, you know, we've all spent so much time thinking about how we as practitioners, we as technology developers can maintain good clinical practices in the way that we roll things out. It's, it would be a very easy, I think, slope to kind of lose control of some of that if we don't apply that same principle in the way that we bring these new and exciting technologies to bear. But yeah, I guess to your original point, where is it being used? It's being used certainly in discovery. It's being used in data management and clinical operations. It's being used for um, data cleaning and anomaly detection. It's being used for ways that we can um, identify patient populations more broadly and look for trends uh, within those to be able to identify more strongly patients that would react, um, you know, in, in both expected and unexpected ways to drug treatments to be able to predict for people likely to stay on trial. Um, the, the applications are, you know, both numerous and exciting. Um, and I think that we'll continue to see that expand. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's a really great picture of where we are now and sort of how do we see this continuing to evolve? You know, what do you, what would you like the future in this space to look like in terms of what we can use AI and machine learning for? I'd like to begin, I suppose, with speed, but caution. And I don't want to sound like I'm contradicting myself in saying that. Clearly, you know, AI has huge promise and huge potential. And you know, organizations who have 
any sort of capability are quickly realizing that they can turn out narrowly defined applications very, very rapidly in weeks. Um, and so, so in, in my own organization, the first fruits of some of those early investments based on large language models are just about to be made available to staff. So, you know, on the one hand, we know we need to move forward with urgency. On the other, we also know we've got a lot to learn about this space. Uh, and so the complexity, the inherent complexity of AI, the, 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 the notion that very often they are to all intents and purposes, a kind of black box, you know what it was trained on, you don't know how that leads to the outcomes for, for new questions that you're going to put to the AI, for new um, uses that you're going to use AI in. Not always easy to predict the way it's going to deliver your responses. So, so the complexity uh, is an important factor here. The other piece that seems to me incredibly important is, is to recognize that there is a huge level of interest, and appropriately so, not only from potential users of AI, but also from legislators, from policymakers, from regulators, from the general public. And of course, if you read the newspapers, as many of us do, you know, some of the public discourse is turning to the fears associated with AI. And now, you know, that could take us a long way off what we should rightly be focusing on today. But I mention it only because for me, it's a reminder of the importance of beginning well. You know, what I would hate to find is a year from now, everyone's having to row back because we missed some critical steps in the development, the documentation, the way that we use data, the care or lack of care in certain applications with, with the way privacy was secured and so on. And you see this beginning to emerge in, 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 in the sort of spoken and written statements from policymakers, lawmakers, and so on. So, you know, I think moving forward with urgency is going to be key. Moving forward deliberately and with care is going to be key. And if we do both of those together, we're going to get the fruits of the investment quite quickly. But what it means, I think, is we will be wise to move fastest in the lowest risk areas. And as we learn from those low risk applications, gradually move out into the higher impacting, potentially nearer to the patient type applications. So there's a sort of some broad principles. And Lisa, I'm sure you've got much you could add to that. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to play on words on yours. I think you said, you know, speed but caution. I'll flip it and say caution for speed. Um <laughs> which is to say that you know, our our I think we would all agree our industry has not been known for being um quick to adopt new innovations, for being quick to change for good reason because I think we all appreciate the gravity of what we're doing um and the importance with which it is that we um, are appropriately cautious in those. I think that one of the one of the um, push and pulls, the sort of dynamic tension that exists within the industry, is the you know purported desire for um, companies to move faster and be more innovative, while being acutely aware of you know regulatory concerns and regulatory guidance. Now, if you ask the regulators, they would say, you know, it's not, it's not because of us. We've we've given the guidance, we've said the thing, but the interpretation and the comfort level of whether it is being interpreted correctly um, and with the appropriate boundaries creates that tension. Um, you know, I think both intentionally and unintentionally. I think that we have nece not necessarily liked what that has led us to, but 
you know, the alternative is also not desirable that, that anybody is, you know, essentially running amok. I think the caution up front that would allow us to move with speed goes back to something you said at the beginning, Stephen, around, again, transformative moment. I think we cannot underappreciate how quickly this technology will develop. I think we can't underappreciate exactly the cusp of which we stand on. Um, or, and I think that, therefore, spending some really deliberate time right now which, you know, Sophia Acro has been amazing in to help develop guidelines, which will allow us to, I think, sit back with the same level of um, respect and caution that we all imbue into the way that we both develop and, you know, design both technologies and processes today and take that so it is innate in the way that we're um, responding to and respecting AI, ML technologies that are possible so that we are doing things like respecting bias, that we are doing things like um, removing, uh, you know, hallucinations within, which is a term, you know, if you're not familiar with, I'll just sort of two seconds is when the, when the AI starts to do things that are uh, unexplained and kind of goes its own way, there are ways to measure that and, and correct for it, as opposed to letting it run amok. But I think there are principles that we can put in place now that will allow us to both guide and control for it to help everyone understand um, you know, the the difference between provability and explainability, things like that, that will then let us move quickly, continue to respond without needing to essentially reinvent the regulatory wheel every three months, which I feel like is the pace at which we are going to be moving. So getting those guiding principles right in the first place, laying down great agreements and comfort between organizations and regulators so that as we start to develop these technologies, as we continue to push the art of what's possible, we're doing it within the confines of an agreed upon um, safety and organizational net around that, that lets us all understand. And, you know, again, you made, you made great points early on, Stephen, so I'll just keep on, you know, sort of tapping into them, that what we are doing is ultimately something that we would feel comfortable saying to our friends and family, you can trust it because... I know what went into this and I know the rigor with which we applied different technologies and testing parameters and things like that. Um, yeah, I think that that's the, the sort of key piece for how we balance that, you know, caution at speed. I think this also raises a, an interesting point around how we communicate this stuff out to the general public and how we, you know, taking, I don't know, yet another lesson learned from COVID where we, I mean, we've heard the FDA speak about this too. It's like, how do you make sure that while you're making all these advancements, whether it's on a vaccine or technology like AI, you're communicating it out to the public in such a way that they trust what's going on, you know, because if you don't have the trust, people aren't really going to want to be involved in perhaps a trial where you outline these uses of AI and they don't feel very comfortable with that. So they wouldn't, you know, enroll. I think that's a really interesting piece about how we, again, the, I think it ties into that caution that we're talking about here where this is developing quickly. We want it to develop quickly, but really keeping that level of caution in mind as we move forward. And Stephen, you mentioned, I think, which leads us nicely into our next question, the role of policymakers and regulators. Um, and we'll touch on some of the specifics about the FDA's recent guidance, um, or should I say, sorry, discussion paper and RFI. Um, but I'd like to just kind of talk a little generally about this as sort of what do you see as the role of policymakers and regulators in this space? Um, you know, what should and shouldn't fall under the scope of regulatory oversight. Um, and maybe, 
you know, what is your sense right now of how regulators are really thinking about how to regulate AI? Yeah, I, I, I think, well, two things to say, probably. One, we're already starting to see regulators move, and, and appropriately so. Uh, and indeed legislators. And, and if you follow the European news, uh, I know some of our audience will be in the US. If you follow the European news, you'll be aware that the European Parliament passed legislation quite recently on AI and it's gone to the nations for ratification. It will be law by the end of this year or early in next year. So, so there's, there's legislation which is already coming, which we've, we've had a chance to look at. Um, and the EMA, EMA and the FDA are, are starting to give their early thoughts to this topic. For me, then, this, the, the key here is about understanding the inherent risk as it pertains to the patient. In other words, to put it simply, the closer the AI is to the patient, then the more concerned it is reasonable for the FDA to be, or for the EMA, or for any other regulator to be. And the further removed, conversely, the less involved they should be in oversight. So if I have a little tool that is designed to do nothing more than um, help me with some workflow automation in my office, probably the agencies shouldn't care. Now I say probably because there's no nothing is absolute in this world. On the other hand, if, if it's um, helping me analyze some data in a pivotal clinical trial, then of course they should be very closely uh, looking at what it is I'm relying upon to make my statements about the data. So I think that would be the point I would make. And, and I think that that's where the, I believe that's where the regulators are starting to show that they're moving a sort of an understanding of risk and, and then a, a view on how much and to what degree they should have uh, scrutinized, they should be scrutinizing the AI applications. Yeah, I agree entirely. And I think that's that's both well said around proximity to patient, um, as well as maybe degree of unsupervision in terms of how those decisions come into play when we're really using a human in the loop, when um, when possible findings or you know paths of action are suggestions versus automatically implemented. I think that's that's absolutely a place where you know significant guidance could help. Um, companies feel more and less comfortable in certain areas around whether or not they want to adopt those technologies. Um, it certainly would help with, you know, some of to go back to maybe the public's fear around, you know, there's I think there's public fear around what will I do. There's also public fear and fear within our industry around what will it mean for myself within my job. What will it mean for the next group of people who are coming up and into the industry, um, you know, and, and many of these tools are not seeking to replace what individuals do, but rather to augment it, to make them uh, more efficient and more streamlined. And I think, you know, taking into account all of those different machinations in the way that we, again, set down both legislation, regulation, and guidance uh, would be incredibly critical. And, you know, obviously our industry is global. So, you guys are involved in stuff all around the world. And through that lens, we take often as Acro, but as, you know, our individual member companies, an interest in some of these, you know, what's going on globally. Um, and, you know, we've seen guidance and framework so far um, in places like the UK, France, Singapore, just to name a couple. But I'm curious about how, you know, you guys are thinking a little more specifically on AI from a global perspective. Is it something where we could hope to see harmonization, which I think is, you know, a buzzword we talk about all the time when we're thinking globally. But yeah, I just would love to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, where this is going globally. I, I think it's a really good question, uh, Sophia. And I think one where 
my view, and it's a personal view, would be ultimately that's probably where we want to get. But right now, there's still a lot to learn before we can feel that we can align around a kind of universal standard. Um, and so I, I think that would be my view. And perhaps, you know, it's sort of yes, but not yet. You know, and, and it was interesting, the, the, just to compare and contrast, and we might talk about this a little more in a moment, but the FDA has essentially issued a paper which is an invitation to have a conversation. Here's some use cases we're seeing. These are others we envisage. Here's some questions we have for you as, as kind of interested parties. EMA has taken a sort of view, which is we have an expert group. Here's what they tell us. This is what we are now publishing as our position for comment. But it's a, it's, there's a lot more specificity in it than in the, the FDA position, which is more of a conversational piece. And I think both in different ways reflect the same understanding, which in a sense is we know some, we have a lot to learn, and we need the passage of time and the experience of use cases to really home in on what a common standard might look like. But yeah, I think that would be a great target. Yeah, and I think we can see, um, you know, sort of precursors of this uh, in things like risk-based approaches and how long it took to experience globalization and is still underway. You know, certain regional areas are not as comfortable with that. Certain regulatory agencies in those are not, whereas other countries and other regulatory agencies pushing very strongly for it. I think we will likely see something similar and some segmentation of it, which presents interesting challenges because I think a lot of what we're looking at is not just applicability of the mechanisms, the different AI that you can bring to bear, but um, strength of training data plays a huge part in this. And, you know, our if our ultimate goal is um, certainly application of these tools, but with reduction of bias and with, you know, um, depth of access to what we will what we will be able to see within the data, then certainly making sure that our data is not overly focused within particular regions, which means then sharing harmonization to your perspective um, is incredibly important to feed those and then utilization of them. It's one thing to say, okay, well, we won't be able to use these sorts of models in insert geographic area here. That's fine. Companies can choose to use them in certain places. As a technology vendor, there may be companies who will never have interest in it because they operate primarily in a region that doesn't invite it. Um, but when we think about ideas like um, diversity in clinical trials, et cetera, I think the breadth of data upon which we can train is incredibly important. And so therefore, making sure that we're approaching it not just from how the technology can be applied, but what are the sharing patterns and allowability of some of that cross-sharing of data coming out of different um, regions and, and regulations so that regardless of whether you, the utilization of the models happen there, we have the sorts of exposure of the data that we would want to see on you know, historic trials, electronic health records, and the like. I think uh, just to come in quickly on what you've said, Lisa, because I think you hit for me on two of the key topics where there is as yet no consensus about what is appropriate and what's necessary in a regulatory context. And that is explainability of the model. And we can talk about what we mean by that, but, but explainability and, and how important that is. And then the other is, um, how do you measure in some meaningful objective way, whether the data on which you train your algorithm is adequate for the intended use? And, and it's there are things that we can do to get somewhere close to answering some of the those the questions associated with both of those, but they are, for me at least, two quite 
important topics around there is which there is still not yet we've not resolved all the controversy agreed to turn a little bit to the fda discussion paper and rfi more specifically um, and we'll just sort of set this up for the folks listening um, they released this discussion paper and rfi back in may and within that rfi the fda was particularly interested in three categories and this is about a, a bit of a mouthful, so everyone just bear with me. Um, those three categories are human-led governance, accountability, and transparency, quality, reliability, and representativeness of data, and model development, performance, monitoring, and validation. So at this stage, ACRO has provided a response to this RFI, and I was hoping, you know, for the purposes of this podcast today, you guys could really, you know, expand, dig in a little bit on what you see as some of the key points or themes that we need to be driving home to regulators as they continue to work on guidance or potential regulation around AI. You know, what do you think really needs a little bit more um, focus and attention from them as we move forward? Lisa, do you want to begin? On no, this I was going to say, you want to take the first bite of that apple? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sophia. So um, you're right. ACRO, rightly, has brought together a bunch of uh, representatives from across the industry to, to focus on these questions. And of course, every company is interested. So, so that's, in a, in a sense, a good starting point. And we bring a lot of the, uh, surprisingly um, similar perspectives. As it turns out, we're all grappling with similar issues, and they are the ones that the, the agency has put on the table, I think, by and large. But, but in the ACRO submission, we, we focused on a few areas, and, and maybe between Lisa and I, we'll call out some of the key ones with a few headlines. So uh, scope, what is it that the regulators should legitimately be concerned with? And we touched a little bit on this earlier in the conversation. And I think, I think for me, the essence of it is uh, risk as it pertains to the patient. How close is the AI application to the patient? I think that would be the ACRO position today. Um, Governance and oversight. And again, we've sort of touched on this, which is this notion that um, we need to ensure that we build frameworks which can be supported by documentary evidence, procedures, and so on, which describe in a way which is quite thorough um, the way that we go about developing applications for AI. How do we decide what data to use? How do we, how do we ensure that these are fit for purpose in terms of the context of application? What sort of oversight is there, human-wise, uh, to ensure that we are we have good governance in place? Uh, and uh, and then, as as Lisa's already referred, we are by and large, if not entirely, at this stage anyway, things may change in the future. Talking about human in the loop applications, so the the implication that every time the AI is being used, there is someone looking at the outputs and making a judgment call: is that reliable? Yes or no? Accountability and risk assessments uh, is the, the next area, uh, and really about making sure that we have a good understanding of the risk and we are able to measure it in some sort of demonstrably objective way. Again, sort of linking to what we were saying about governance and how we then monitor the AI over time to look for changes in the outcomes for similar questions, for example. Um, um, and then I'm going to hand it over to Lisa. I don't know if you want to finish off with the last few areas. Um, I think we are human oversight was next up. Yeah, and it's in a great tee up there. When we come into human oversight, which dovetails a little into what you were looking at before, but it is in sort of one of the things that we want to imp 
uh, impress upon this is that at this stage and at this point, um, it's essential for maintaining that proper governance. So some of the different areas that we can include this kind of oversight is both the human review in terms of accuracy testing. So we'll get to explainability in a minute, but if our ultimate goal is the, the outcome is what we are looking for, then having that accuracy testing at those different stages is incredibly important. Um, but similarly, you know, what goes out is based on what comes in. So making sure that we have oversight to what is the data that's used to ultimately train these models to start to make sure that when, whenever possible, we are increasing the breadth that it is targeted for the intended use of that particular model, because that becomes important. It's not just about exposing it to a broader data set, but what is the intended use of it? Um, and then making sure that we're monitoring for inaccuracies. So ultimately, it will make poor decisions sometimes. Do we have a mechanism for understanding the what that is associated with that and the why so that we can go and put corrective actions back into the models? And again, we talked about bias before, but identifying and reducing bias at each stage, both through the data that we're bringing in, the way the model is running, the ultimate suggestions, and even the human uh, interpretation of those suggestions. So we talk about human in the loop. Ultimately, there is a human making a decision point. How do we ensure that they are provided with the right spectrum of information to not be introducing their own bias based on what they're taking in from the AI? One of the other areas we wanted to look at was transparency. So making sure that we have transparency transparency associated with this uh, is vital for both uh, the companies that are conducting the studies, the companies that are participating in the generation of these technologies, and ultimately um, the regulatory agencies themselves. So can we articulate from an organization's perspective, their appetite for the risk and the methodologies and the frameworks associated. We spend a lot of time talking about um, impact assessments and you know risk assessments and things like that. So can we have an AI impact assessment document that lays out, here is our approach as an organization to how we will conduct these, um, making sure that we understand the purpose of the system that we're putting in place. So policies and procedures and disclaimers that talk about why we put this model in place in the first place, how was it trained, um, how is it going about its decision-making processes. So we are, even if we are not seeking to explain the AI itself, that we're seeking to explain why we are undertaking the particular model that we're using helps um, to increase both that comfort level and the transparency. And making sure that we do have um, readability metrics associated with these. So what does it mean to ensure that we have clear and concise explanations of both what we brought into the model, what the model is producing, um, and again, all in the, in the efforts of increasing transparency as to what's happening. So that does bring us to explainability. So we believe that research has shown that explainability of models comes with trade-offs. Um, oftentimes what this means in simplistic terms is that um, the more that you explain how a model works or the mo more that you ensure that you can explain the details of how a model works, the less accurate it becomes, the less powerful it becomes, or you're putting limitations on it by introducing explainability. So we believe that less focus on explaining every nuance and detail of how it's working and more emphasis on the totality of the evidence or the interpretability. So making sure that we are testing and understanding and controlling for the outcomes 
that that is more of a risk-based approach to the trade-off associated here. So having some level explainability, but not trying to explain it to the nth degree, which ultimately you know, reduces the outcome. We can think about this analogous to the way that certain drugs work. We have drugs that are out there used widely today and different you know, lab assays and things like that, that ultimately we don't have full explanation for why they work, but we have proven that they do work. We understand the ultimate outcome, we understand risks and, uh, you know, adverse events associated with them. And that's the model I think we all have been structured around. Very, very similar for AI. Sometimes we don't know exactly why it's working, but we can prove that it does and we can prove what the drawbacks might be. And that should ultimately be our goal around these is, again, getting to end result with um, appropriate controls and safety associated. That was great very thorough, which I think as, you know, I'm biased, obviously, in saying this, but I do think the ACRA response is very thorough. It is very thorough. And we really hit all the high points there. So I wonder to, you know, just to sort of put a bow on this episode, um, we started off talking about good clinical practice. So we may as well end talking about it as well. You know, when we're thinking about things like explainability, transparency, when it comes to AI specifically, how are we thinking about what good practice looks like here? You know, wondering from the two of you, you know, what really is sort of that, I don't know if idealized state is correct, but you know, what does good clinical practice in AI look like? Yeah, I think I think there are two parts to this for me. And one is to do with the way the model has been built. And the other is the way to do with the way the model is used. Uh, and by model, I just, if you like the application, the, the AI tool, whatever we want to call it. In terms of the building, you know, I'm a statistician by training. I suspect my son, who was a data scientist, would come at this rather differently than me. For him, massive amounts of data, massive amounts of parameters in the model that underlies the AI would be no big deal. For me, I was taught around um, elegant algebraic solutions with minimal numbers of parameters. But, but you know, to the point that Lisa was just talking about, for me, simpler is better because it gets closer to this ideal that we have of, well, then I can understand and explain what's going on here. There is less that is unknown. There's less that's unpredictable. There will be fewer surprises, but there are limitations to that. And I think we all understand implicitly that ultimately, if we try too hard to make simple, then we lose important power and, and insights in the outcomes that a, a good AI model can give us. So I think it's sort of, you know, there's an element of risk and reward here. So my, my natural tendency to say simpler is better has to be tempered by that insight. And then in terms of the use, I, I think the other the, the piece that's important here is, is to help people use it and to show them how to use it well. Because as, again, Lisa has said, we know that um, large language models can give rise to hallucinations, untruths, that, that in essence, AI doesn't know the difference, doesn't care about the difference between truth and falsehood. It's one and the same. We tend to think, I think, if we know it, if users think about anything when they come to use ChatGPT for the first time, perhaps they think of it as a sort of an advanced version of Google search, but nothing could be further from the truth. It is nothing like an advanced Google search. It works in a fundamentally different way, which is, I suppose, just a reminder that that presumption of in intuition guiding us in the use of these tools will not hold water. It will not last for very long. And and so we just need to help users understand what it is they're working with, how to use it effectively, and to provide a framework within which their chance of using it incorrectly is minimized, whilst not hamstringing them to the extent that, that we really, again, lose the potential power of these tools. So I think I said right early on, and we, we both agreed, you know, speed, but with caution or caution, but moving with speed. And, and the same here to some degree, which is we've got to give people freedom to use it. 
but we've got to somehow put some constraints around it so they don't go wildly off course. And the same with the developers. Yeah, agreed with all of those statements. I think maybe I'll start with what would bad look like before I go to what good looks like. I think um, for me, bad would be uh, getting ahead of our skis such that you know someone in our industry makes a catastrophic mistake with it that ultimately impacts patient safety in a way that then disallows the future use or contrain, constrains it so tightly that we're not able to get the benefits of it for some time. You know, you can draw a parallel to, you know, nuclear power, things like that, where if we are not careful, then we become too afraid of, you know, the technological advancements that then, you know, set us down a course that allows that we cannot take advantage of them. I think then the goal of getting to that means, and we've touched on it a couple of times, it's um, you know, caution and transparency. I think the, well, let me phrase it differently, transparency and education, perhaps. And that goes not just for, you know, the public at large. When I think about education, I'm thinking about um, ourselves, the technology companies, the pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, so that we do not go down any sort of a path of wild exuberance associated with this. You know, Stephen pointed out really well what a lot of the misconceptions are and what it explicitly is not when it comes to some of these technologies. So I think the more that we can be out there helping to educate the organizations, helping to educate our industry, the more that we can be extraordinarily transparent about what we are attempting to do with these technologies, how they've been tested, um, you know, and we can do that without uh, overexposing our IP. We can do that without overexposing, you know, the secret sauce that may be associated with these to make sure that it is right and proper for companies to ask how their technology partner is employing these, that it's right and proper that um, that we be able to challenge and ask the pharmaceutical companies and the CROs how they are implying these, and they should be able and willing and excited to both explain and show proof of, et cetera, according to, you know, many of the guidelines, I think were really well put together by ACRO, will keep and foster a culture of shared responsibility, um, shared transparency, shared education, so that we can move together in these advancements while, uh, I don't want to say keeping each other in check, but making sure that we are moving with caution and speed. Um, associated with it. I, I, I will just take a moment because I, I, I feel like we're sort of all being very sensible here, appropriately so, balanced on the one hand, on the other. You know, to the audience who's listening to this, I, I would say this one thing. If you haven't tried using ChatGPT or something like it, I urge you to do so and to play around and to persevere with it because what it can give you is extraordinary. I mean, I mean, truly, it will knock you off your feet. It's just the most incredible new tool. And if you don't get excited by that, then you haven't got a heart. You haven't got a soul. There's something missing because it genuinely is unbelievable. I urge you to use ChatGPT yeah. or something like it. Yeah, really well said. And I think that the more that we can get people comfortable with it, like you're saying, help them understand the magic of it, really the the excitement of it. And also some of the times where it takes a hard right and <laughs> gives you not at all what you would either want or expect, I think helps people start to um, internalize and understand what some of those limitations can be. And then the more that we can bring AI into 
uh, practical examples of exactly how we can use it to accelerate drug development, accelerate the execution process of trials, very tangible results that start to say, okay, I get it. I see that. I see how you're not just talking about the the different aspects of how it can be used, but I can see how that model comes into play. Oh, I see your suggestions. Those make sense. Oh, you were able to make that interpretation months before I would have. That's that's fantastic. Now I can accelerate my work into other jobs. I think the more that we make those practical examples real life, the more we will start to lay the path of really exploring the art of what's possible. Absolutely. I should mention this episode is not sponsored by ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, this has been a really great discussion with both of you. I think, you know, like we said, sort of at the top of the episode there, it's a really exciting time. There's a lot to be discovered still about the, you know, where we can go with AI and machine learning. And so it's been really great to obviously work with both of you through ACRO um, and we're excited to continue doing so. I'll thank you both for joining me today. This has been really great. And I'm sure we will be having many more conversations in the months to come. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Sophia and Lisa. Thank you for a very pleasurable conversation. Thank you. You as well. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks to you both. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that episode as illuminating as I did. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. We post new episodes every Tuesday. And join me back here next week when I sit down with Kimberly Richardson to talk about diversity and inclusion in clinical trials and the path forward.